A Bible reading this morning is from Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 20. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that was so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that God may result. That good may result. Their condemnation is just. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we, come, we become conscious of our sin. This is God's word. Gracious God, would you move us now to be able to believe these words about us? 
that there is nothing in us that would make us pleasing to you. Expose our sin, make us conscious of sin, as difficult as that is and as painful as that may be. Show us our sin so that we may see our need for a saviour. And we pray this in the name of our saviour, Jesus. Amen. There's an old saying that says insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And there's some truth to it, isn't there? You, You shake your head when you see someone repeatedly doing the same thing and hoping that things might change for them. Uh, The example that came to mind as I was thinking about this is I had a friend at uni uh, who just made terrible, terrible, terrible relationship decisions. Uh, She would just fall head over in heels in love with these awful guys. And, And Every time she would be in this relationship for a few months and then it would crash and burn, she would be in tears. And then a few weeks later, she would come and introduce us all to her new boyfriend and we would all just kind of shake our heads, going, we can see how this is going to play out. It's insanity. But we're all a bit insane sometimes, aren't we? How often do you find yourself doing something that you've done before? That didn't work last time, or the time before that, or the time before that, but maybe this time. No, it doesn't work, does it? Janice and I do this thing uh, when we have kids who are grumpy and tired and squabbling. That happens sometimes. And and we, we see the situation and we go, maybe ice cream will help. It seems like such a good idea at the time. But of course, it's always a disaster. The one thing worse than grumpy, tired, squabbling kids is grumpy, tired, squabbling kids that are full of sugar. And it's just a disaster. And yet, even after surviving World War Three, it'll be a couple of weeks later, and we've got tired, grumpy, squabbling kids, and we'll look at each other and we go, I've got an idea. It's so stupid. It's insane. And yet, I'm sure we're not the only ones who try the same thing over and over again and expect a different result. This morning, I want you to see that very often people in churches do that in their relationship with God. Because even though we know that the only way to be in a right relationship with God is through the finished work of Jesus Christ, all of us instinctively revert to thinking that we can be right with God by our own doing. Because all of us, by default, are people who believe in works righteousness. Now, we may not use those words to describe ourselves, but by default, each of us think that by our doing, we might be saved, that we might be in relationship with God. Now, for some of us, that comes about through us trying to uh, follow Laws, maybe like keeping the Ten Commandments. And we think that if we can just keep these commandments, well, God will be pleased. And so we kind of tick them off. Oh, I haven't murdered, I haven't committed adultery, I haven't misused God's name. I'm right with God. Some of us maybe look to things like church attendance or our baptism as the basis of our right standing. 
Some Christians attempted to see their avoidance of conscious sin. The fact that they haven't knowingly sinned in the last day, and they go, oh, therefore I'm right with God. For some of us, it's as simple as going, well, I'm not as bad as that guy, so therefore God must accept me. All of us attempted to rely on works to secure a right standing with God. But in Romans chapter 3, which we just read, it's here to show us that no one is righteous and that no one can become righteous by their own doing. Trying to turn aside God's anger at sin by our own doing always fails. And so trying to do it over and over again, it's not only insane, it's deadly. And so there's our two main points for us this morning. Number one, no one is righteous. Number two, no one will ever become righteous by their own doing. But before we get to that, Paul sort of interrupts his main argument and he spends the first eight verses of chapter three doing a little Q&A. In fact, he asks the questions and then he answers them. Perhaps they're questions that he's heard before. Perhaps he's made them up. But in verse uh, one of chapter eight, we get the first question. But just to kind of set the context, uh, since verse 18 of chapter one, Paul has been writing to ensure that his readers understand that God's wrath is being revealed against everyone, everywhere, because everyone has refused to acknowledge God as God. He's shown how non-religious people outside the church are guilty of sin, and he's shown how people inside the church, even, even religious people, even Jews, are facing God's wrath. Even God's chosen people are guilty and facing God's anger. And so this leads to the first question that Paul anticipates in verse 1, which is basically, what's the point in being a Jew? If Jews are just as guilty of sin as everyone else, what benefit is there in belonging to God's special covenant people? Now, it's a good question. does seem a little redundant, doesn't it, if everyone is just as guilty? But Paul answers very enthusiastically in verse 2, and he says, much in every way. What advantage is there in being a Jew? Much in every way. Because just like you entrust your money to a bank, Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What a privilege it is. Now, the next question comes in verse 3, and he says, wouldn't God judging Jews make him guilty of breaking his covenant promises? You see, if God has promised to bless Abraham's descendants, doesn't Paul's teaching that even Abraham's descendants are guilty of sin mean that God has failed? Paul's answer is absolutely not. He says God is always just, always fair. And he says that even in the gospel, we see God continuing to bless the nations through Abraham's descendants. God hasn't failed just because people have. 
The third question comes in verse 5. I know I'm moving through these quickly. Uh, third question comes in verse 5 where uh, the imaginary questioner asks whether you could, you could argue that since human failure reveals God's righteousness more clearly, then it would therefore be unfair of God to judge us. Do you see the logic there? If, if our failure actually shows that God is righteous, well, how could he say that we're at fault? We're, we're making him appear more righteous. The same argument comes with the fourth question in verse 7, where it's suggested that our sin makes God look better, therefore sin is good. It's an interesting argument, but Paul shuts it down very sharply. He's saying, sin is always sin. God must judge it. Now, I've raced through those. Uh, If you're a bit lost, don't panic. This isn't central to Paul's argument. He's paused his argument to, to kind of take a moment to answer any objections that might come. Now, if you've got a question about any of this, you can, you can ask one at the end. But what I want us to draw out from this is the thinking behind these questions that come in verse 1 to 8. I think it's thinking that will resonate with some of you. Because at its heart, all of these four questions are really asking, is God fair? Is it fair that God judges sin? Is it right that God considers mass murderers and child abusers and evil dictators equally as guilty as kind, friendly, moral people like you? Is what the Bible teaches about hell too heavy-handed? Now, I know some of you really wrestle with these kinds of questions. And if that's one of you, uh, you're not alone and it's okay to find this difficult. Honestly, as a pastor, I'd much rather deal with people who struggle with the idea of God's wrath than the people who enjoy God's anger at sin too much. Not that we can't enjoy it. God's judgment is good. But while I can't say everything that can be said about why God's judgment is good and fair, what I do want to say right now is that we will always doubt God's fairness if our starting point is that humans are basically good. If we believe that we are basically good, God's judgment will always appear unfair. Which is why it's so important for us that we see Paul's main point in this section, which is that no one is righteous. Verse 9 is Paul's conclusion to this big section that we've spent the last five weeks studying it. We've been talking a lot about sin. And Paul says, what shall we conclude about all this that we have said? He says, do we have any advantage? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. And you could sum up his whole message in that. Everyone is under the power of sin. 
Now, just notice, he's just said in verse 2 that Jews have special privileges. He says there's, there's much advantage in being a Jew. They've been entrusted with God's word. But do Jews or religious people or church-going Christians have any advantage when it comes to God's judgment? Paul's answer is absolutely not. Everyone is under the power of sin, which means all people, church-going, non-church-going, everyone, equally guilty, equally facing God's righteous judgment on sin. Now, that's hard for us to swallow because it sort of sounds like we would be arguing that we are equally as sinful as someone like Hitler or Putin. Surely we can't all be in the same boat. Uh, Here's a helpful way to understand that. I want you to imagine that there are three people and they're trying to swim from Noosa to South America. I don't know how far it is. It's a long way. The first person can't swim at all. So they, they head out at Noosa Main Beach. Once they go out past the, you know, beyond their depth, they're in trouble, they drown. The second person's a surf lifesaver. They're very competent in the water. They make steady progress. They go for hours, maybe even a whole day. But eventually they tire and they too drown. The third person is this guy. This is Pablo Fernandez. He holds the Guinness World Record for the longest non-stop ocean swim. Well, on this particular day, he smashes his own world record. He swims 300 kilometres. That is one-seventh of the way to New Zealand. But it's still nowhere near South America. And eventually, he drowns. Now, tell me, which of the three swimmers is the most drowned? It's the same with our sin. We may not all be equally sinful. Some people are more flagrant in their offending. For some people, their list of sins is much longer than it is for others. But we're all just as drowned under the power of sin. Equally guilty. Equally deserving of God's righteous judgment. And it's not just Paul saying this, because in verses, uh, from verse 10, Paul strings together seven passages from the Old Testament that all reinforce his point. From Ecclesiastes 7, he says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Psalm 14, he says, all have turned away. And have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. From Psalm 5. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. Psalm 140. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Psalm 10. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Isaiah 59. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. Psalm 36. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He just piles evidence upon evidence from the whole Old Testament showing that there is no one who is righteous. Now, there's a few things that we see from these quotes about the nature of sin. And the first of those is that 
Sin is first and foremost about ungodliness. You see, we tend to think about sin as as breaking rules or, or doing naughty things. But Paul's list of quotes begins saying that no one seeks God and it ends by saying no one fears God. And this sums up his whole message about sin. Sin is not first and foremost about doing wrong things and breaking rules. It is about breaking relationship. It is denying the truth about God and refusing to acknowledge him as God. That is the problem of sin. No one is righteous because no one puts God at the center of their lives. Sin is about ungodliness. That's the first thing we see there. The second thing we learn from these verses is that sin affects every part of us. Do you notice how many body parts get a mention here? Minds, mouths, lips, throats, feet, eyes. Every aspect of who we are is tainted by sin. Our thoughts, our desires, our words, our actions, sin affects all of you. And the third thing we learn here is that just as sin affects all of you, it affects all of us. Twice we are told that all have gone their own way, four times that no one is righteous, and twice that not even one is exempt. All people in all times and from all places, regardless of their upbringing, regardless of their church attendance, regardless of anything else, all people have rejected God. No one is righteous. Now, before we move on from that, I just want you to see, I want you to pause for a moment and consider those words at the end of verse 11. There is no one who seeks God. Now, that's interesting. Because many Christians don't believe that. I mean, we sometimes call uh, unbelievers who come into church seekers. You might be familiar with that language. I suspect many of you felt like you were seeking God when you first came to faith. But here Paul says there is no one who seeks God. And he's 100% right. You didn't seek God. Unbelievers who come to church aren't seeking God. There is no one who seeks God. And the reason for that is that we are so thoroughly under the power of sin that none of us even wanted to seek God. We did just the opposite. We we ran away from God. We put him as far away from us as we could. Now, certainly there are some people who seek God's blessings. They want the good things that God can provide. There are people who want their prayers answered. There are people who realize that they need help in this life. There are people who crave a spiritual experience. But no one actually seeks for God himself. No one has that desire to enjoy him for who he is. None of us sought God. It took God to seek 
us. Jesus says in John chapter 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Do you see how, how much this changes our view of ourselves and changes our view of God? We, we need to remember this. None of us sought him. He sought us. And if that's true, first of all, it'll make us so incredibly thankful because the fact that God did seek us just confirms how much he loves us. He didn't hide from us. He didn't stay off at a distance. He didn't wait to see if we might find our way to him. Like the father in Jesus' parable, God came running and embraced us and blessed us and rejoiced over us. And so, friends, you can rejoice. God has sought you. But secondly, it'll make you humble. There was and there is nothing in you that made you come and put your faith in Jesus. It was all him. Which doesn't leave very much room for boasting, does it? There's no room for our pride. And just as you don't hear the kids at school who need extra tutoring going around telling everyone how smart they are, just as you don't hear the patients in ICU telling everyone how amazingly healthy they are, neither do we have any reason to boast other than our total lack of merit. The fact that we didn't seek God, that God sought us, it'll make us thankful, it'll make us humble. And third, it can make us confident. Because if, the, if it's true that the all-powerful God without any compulsion, went out of his way to seek you and to save you. Is there any reason to think that he will not do what he promised? If it was up to you to seek God, you have every right to be anxious because your salvation would depend on you. But because God sought us, we can have all the confidence in the world. He started it. He will finish it. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Friends, Paul's main point for the better part of the first three chapters of Romans is that no one is righteous and that all people are facing God's righteous judgment because of their sin. If you haven't got that message in the last five weeks, I think you might not have been listening, because that's basically all we've been saying for five weeks. We're all sinful, we're all guilty, we're all facing God's wrath. Now, there's a natural question that should come out of of all this, which is, what do we do about it, Paul? He spent so long banging home the message that none of us are righteous. That's the problem. What's the solution? Well, we'll see that next week. We're not going to see it just yet. We'll see that in verses 21 and onwards. But before Paul goes there, he wants to draw out one of the false solutions that people cling to. One of the things that people try and fail 
to deal with God's anger at sin. And that thing is good works. Because having argued previously that even Jews are guilty of sin and facing God's wrath, Paul knows that Jews, just like us, will think that they can escape this judgment by keeping the law, by doing good. They will think, oh, if I just do everything that God requires in the law, I will be saved. If I just keep the commandments, if I just love God and love my neighbor. And so they will try to use the law as the ladder to God, the way to be righteous. And Paul says in verse 20, that is not what the law is for. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Paul's telling his fellow Jews that we know the law was given to teach us that we are all accountable to God. Every Jew would be able to agree with those words. And so then he continues in verse 20 and he says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. No one. Rather, through the law we become conscious of our sin. Paul's saying the law was never meant to be a ladder you climb to reach God. The law was intended to be a mirror which shows you just how far you fall short of God's mark. The law was not meant to raise you up, it was meant to bring you down and make you see that you need a righteousness that comes from outside of you. Now, next week we'll see how it is that someone can be declared righteous. But for now, the thing we need to see is that no one will be declared righteous by works of the law or anything else that you do. And that means that we not only need to repent of our sin, of our wrongdoing, it means we actually need to repent of our goodness. Not repent of doing good things, but repenting of relying on doing those good things as a way of being right with God. You see, so often people in churches, we we, we cling to our good deeds like they are our ticket to heaven. We latch on to our acts of service, we our involvement in ministry, our generosity, our moral performance. We, we cling to those things so tightly because we think these are the things that make us right with God. But friends, not only do these things not save us, they actually get in the way of us receiving the only thing that can. There are many people in churches, friends, who will repent of their sins. Many people who can acknowledge, I'm not perfect, I sin. But friends, only a Christian can repent of their sins and of their wrongly motivated good works. Friends, do you see the way that you're tempted to cling to your good works as a basis for your righteousness? Friends, repent of that. Repent of your reliance on good works. Stop 
thinking that doing good things will make you right with God, that's insanity. It has never worked. It will never work. Friends, let me finish with these closing words of a hymn. It's called It Is Finished, and it goes like this. Great words for us to remember. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. Let me pray. Father God, we praise you this morning that though we are unrighteous, in the gospel we see revealed a righteousness that is received by faith. We thank you that though no one seeks you, you sought us. We thank you that though no one does good, you did good for us. And we thank you that though we were under the power of sin, in the gospel we see your power which brings salvation for all who believe. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us to repent of our good works that we are tempted to rely on for our salvation. Would you remind us today and every day that no amount of law abiding rule keeping deed doing can make us right show us that there is nothing in us that would make us pleasing to you show us our need for a savior help us believe that sin is as big a problem as it is so that we may latch on to your salvation in the Lord Jesus, that we might receive it by faith, and that we might rejoice that you have done it for us. Lord, may these things be true for us now and as we go out, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.